Have you ever led a team or worked in an organization where civility wasn't always the default setting? Now, before you answer no, I think you may want to hear the perspective from today's guest on how to tame workplace incivility. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 210. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And if this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. And one of the lenses that I consider when I'm thinking about bringing guests onto the show is... When can I invite someone onto the show that brings a perspective that perhaps we haven't heard before, but even if we've heard, we haven't necessarily thought about it in the context of our leadership and our organization. And for a lot of us, sometimes those conversations are new ways to reframe things we've seen before. And today's conversation definitely is pushing those buttons for me in a good way on how I can reframe some of the things that I've had assumptions about before, and I hope that that's true for you as well. And my guest today is Sharon Bar-David. She is a popular speaker and leading expert on workplace incivility. She coaches abrasive leaders and is the president of Bar-David Consulting, a firm that helps organizations create civil work environments. And she's also the author of the new book, Trust Your Canary, Every Leader's Guide to Taming Workplace Incivility. Well, Sharon, first of all, hello. And also, I'm just curious how it is that you got into this line of work and looking at workplace incivility. Hello, David. Thank you so much for having me on the show Where it began, like probably for many of your listeners, life happens organically and in some zigzags. I didn't set out to be an expert and speaker and a carrier of the torch of workplace civility. But rather, uh, I started as a lawyer and then I became, I got a master's in social work and I got into training in the workplace, uh, respectful workplace harassment arena after clients of mine wanted me to come and do work in that. Mm. But I was never interested in, you know, blatant harassment, like grabbing someone's personal body part or, or, or um, real discriminatory or harassing comments, but always in the subtleties, those things that the things that the managers that I was speaking with and to we're finding extremely difficult to pinpoint and to respond to. And over time, that evolved into not even harassment, but more of those little uh, seemingly insignificant behaviors that are rude or disrespectful or discourteous, where you're not really sure if there's an intent to harm or not. It's kind of very ambiguous. Those things that happen in any workplace, as you had said in your introduction to any of us, and that we also all participate in, and that those seemingly insignificant acts are what are defined as workplace incivility. And once I got into this arena, I fell in love. 
I started developing my own ideas. I had some fabulous published research that wasn't mine to look at and to use to inspire the people who were coming to hear me in different organizations. And there we went. And I'm still in love with this topic. Well, I'm, several years into it. <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell. And, you know, it's it, it's it's funny as I was looking at, at your material, you know, the thing you described, the, the blatant kind of harassment and discrimination, it certainly happens in organizations. And I, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that that doesn't happen because it does. Uh, and yet, when I think about the work you do, the, the kinds of things you're talking about happens in almost every organization to some extent. It's so much more common and as I as I had your book and I started looking through it, you know, I, I I picked it up with the I think probably the mindset that probably a lot of people do when they th- when they hear about your work, Sharon is like, oh, that's really good. That's a great book for other people. <laughs> and so as I started reading through it, then and and looking over your materials, it's like, oh, so there are some things in here that I've done. I know that I've contributed to too. And I'm guessing that that's. That's part of both the opportunity, but also the obstacle in your work is that sometimes we don't recognize our own role in this, do we? I like how you say sometimes, because I would say that it's most of the time, if not always, that uh, we tend to see others as being uncivil to us, but might perceive ourselves as perceive ourselves as flawless or dare I say, holier than thou. And that's why whenever I work with people, like within the first 15 minutes, I make sure that everyone in the room or everyone that is part of the um, consulting that I'm involved in uh, finds themselves admitting that, yes, I've done some of those. I may have rolled my eyes. I may have ill-spoken of someone. I may have belittled someone's work in some way, maybe even in public. I may have marginalized someone. I may have done what I call the rut, the rude use of technology, RUT. We've all done it. And the first step is in any change, in my opinion, is seeing that it's not them, those rude ones against us, the sweet, flawless ones, but rather that we're all in this together. And that doesn't mean, admitting that we also do it, doesn't mean that things don't need to change. On the contrary, it means we start with ourselves and then also learn how to deal with it when it happens in others, especially if you're a manager or a leader, which is what we're here to talk about today to a large extent. Yeah, and that's why this is such an important conversation because really the leader does set the tone for how the organization behaves and the things that people say or don't say and the actions that people take in the workplace. And that that's why this is just so interesting to me. And, you know, you, you caught me right at the very beginning. Uh, one of the things that you have in the book is that six belief systems around um, kind of, and I might even say some of the things we tell ourselves that we think are okay or that are appropriate, and yet really aren't the kinds of ways we want to necessarily approach situations or approach organizations. And the very first one caught me um, that you say, we're like family here. And I have both had people tell that to me. And I've I've also, uh, I know I've said that to others, even in, in some of our work. Um, I'm just thinking recently, I've used the word, you know, we're family. 
tell me about that okay. belief and why is that something that can work against us or work against civility in the organization? It's really interesting because we assume when we say we're like a family here, it's typically a way for us to allow ourselves to get away with uh, behaviors or ways of speaking that we wouldn't dare do if we didn't assume or believe that, uh, hey, we're like family. We have this intimacy. We have this closeness um, that enables us to, to do all these things. And when we say that, we kind of forget that many, if not most, families are actually can have all kinds of dysfunction in them. We talk about it as if family is perfect and we're always considerate and loving. But in fact, um, I can't even begin to tell you how many organizations I go to and behaviors that otherwise would absolutely not be tolerated are justified with that. Or, hey, I know my colleagues' boundaries is another belief. Mm-hmm. And the, the problems for leaders often start when they too either subscribe to these beliefs themselves and in fact maybe even foster that. We, we nowadays in the workplace foster what's called sick relations. We want people to be more relating to each other because that increases loyalty to the organization and more engagement. But those sick relations, if you will, where there's more connectivity between people have to also be monitored uh, so that they don't yield uh, inadvertent results, undesired, uh, unintended results. And this notion of we're like family here and pulsating in the background often means that the manager too, the leader too, kind of is left scratching their head, their inner canary, their inner voice that helps them define what's right and wrong and where that line is, that inner canary chirps away and tells them something isn't right here. Some of these behaviors shouldn't really be happening here. But balanced with that is that belief that, but we're like a family, it's that closeness, and I can't as a leader intervene. And I would venture to say, based on my observations across many sectors, working with tens, you know, thousands and thousands of people by now, is that incivility almost always is enabled and, in fact, fostered by beliefs that are undercurrent, that sometimes aren't even known, but do create the the fertile ground upon which behaviors that are disrespectful and rude and actually hurtful when all is said and done, these behaviors can happen because of the beliefs that, that are on the ground or in the background, whatever metaphor we want to use. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and that really that did catch my attention when I saw that we're like family here, because mm-hmm. as I thought back to my own experiences in some organizations and also clients I've worked with, I was thinking, wow, that's really powerful, and it's not something I probably would have ever thought of. But now that I'm framing some past situations in that context, I can totally see where that relates. And I'm wondering, um, just so we get a good sense of how this can manifest itself, what's a situation where you've worked with a client or an organization and you've seen that that belief ends up causing or at least contributing to some of the incivility that you speak of? Well, an organization comes to mind that I've worked with just recently um, in the social service sector where... um, 
people, um, a few people were allowing themselves to be extremely sarcastic towards others. It's a sarcasm. Um, the sarcasm always has a little knife in it. And uh, these people allowed themselves to be like that on a regular basis. Uh, which, by the way, was propelled not only by the we're like a family here belief, but also by another belief, which is it's this is how we are in our sectors. So think about, let's say, mining companies. Well, we're rough. Uh, construction, you still find that often. Uh, we're rough. We, we, you know, we can be really rough with each other. It's in our sector. Think about uh, nurses in the operating room. We don't have time for niceties. It's life and death here. We have too much stress, so we don't need to be nice. I can make a face at a colleague when he or she isn't doing the right thing. And so in going back to the example that you were asking about, here you had um, people who were really treating their colleagues with utmost disrespect, leaving quite a few bodies in their wake on a daily basis. But it was under this guise of, well, you know, we're close. We, we're like a family. We rely on each other. And in our sector, there's so much stress and we're dealing with all these important issues and this is how we are. And you had managers, uh, even senior ones, who were quite um, frozen, shall I say, unable to identify correctly the beliefs that were undercurrent and not holding these people accountable. And then there is surprise why so many people leave us or why people go on stress leave or why people seem to take longer breaks than usual or why there's gossip and all kinds of other um, cracks on a team along, along certain lines. There's the, you know, there's the clique group and so on. So things can get really, really bad. They don't always do, but they can. And I'm interested in what you said about stress leave, because that's certainly something I've heard of with clients and and, um, other organizations before. I'm wondering, does that something you see a lot? Is that that something that is a a symptom of this, or or is that something that's a rarity? I'm I'm just kind of wondering how that shows up uh, in the work you do. It's not a rarity at all. Um, really interesting research by Christine Pearson and Christine Porath, who who were the ones who created the seminal research in this, suggests uh, all kinds of figures that I'll, I'll rhyme off in a moment because they are interesting. Um, but I do my own polling of people uh, we do at Bar David Consulting, whether it's leaders, kind of work that I do, or whether we work with frontline staff, we do our own polling and we say, what do you think the research results were? And we pose some of the questions that the researchers looked into. And <laughs> the truth is, Dave, that real people in real life give us much higher figures than what the researchers found. So mm. they, for example, found that um, 47% will purposely lower their work effort when they are exposed to incivility, even sometimes just a single act. Uh, 80%, which is one out of uh, four out of five people, will lose time worrying about an incident. Uh, 66%, two out of three, will notice that their performance declined after an incident. 
So when you, and as I said, my figures, I didn't collect them uh, systematically, but real people are telling me in different sectors, higher numbers. When you look at that, then of course people either take formal time off like stress leave or they just use that extra day that they had, the mental health day or the extra vacation and the extra sick day which they otherwise wouldn't have taken. Just because who needs to bother with looking at that colleague or that manager again? I can't stand it. I was belittled yesterday or I was this or I was that and I'm just not going to show up to work or I'm not going to take on the overtime. Yeah, and that's where I think sometimes the more, I don't know if cynic's the right word, but sometimes when we approach conversations like this, people say, oh, you know, it's all well and good. We want to have a nice workplace. But at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers. And, you know, part of what you're saying and the research is showing and the work you're doing is that this really moves the numbers (laughs) for better or worse, depending on how well your organization is handling this or not handling this. There's a direct tie in how productive productive people are and how they feel about the engagement they have in the workplace. Absolutely. And it all slides under the radar, the radar, uh, the organizational radar. If you and I sometimes when working with uh, leadership teams, and especially if, if we're working with a senior leadership team, I say, let's do some of the math. Let's do it for your organization. And that's after we discuss what percent of people would do this and what percent of people. And everyone agrees that the research numbers are probably even conservative. And then I say, well, in your organization, you know your culture. Um, And I invite, as I'm speaking now, I invite every one of your listeners or our listeners for this program to to think about this for their organization. So you know your organization. Uh, So in your organization, what percent, uh, how many times a week would a person and experience incivility that is directed at them that they actually kind of velcroed themselves onto that bugged them that got under their skin because we often experience incivility just like we are the creators of it ourselves it often it just brushes off us we teflon it off but sometimes we velcro it so how many times a week does a person on average in your organization with its unique culture experience an, an incident that they don't feel good about Let's be really conservative. So let's say we say, okay, once a week. Okay, and when that happens, how much time would this person, the average person in your organization, lose worrying? Five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. Let's keep it really conservative. Don't say an hour, keep it conservative. How many minutes um, would they uh, spend, how much time would they spend purposely lowering their work time? And so on, so we, we go over things like that. Five minutes, five minutes. Dave, you know, when you start multiplying, let's say it's an hour a week, even if it's just 30 minutes a week, 30 minutes a week, double that by the number of working weeks, multiply that by um, the hourly average rate, including benefits, and then multiply it by your number of employees. Yeah, the numbers start to get pretty big really quick, don't they? That's an, I'd say that's a big understatement. And yet, we're walking around like it doesn't matter. Like it's, uh, oh, yeah, civility is a nice thing. Yeah, yeah. We all know that it's good. Uh, just what, you know, just as you had said, it's all about the numbers. Uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe we don't need to really think about it because it's just about the numbers. But when you get down to the numbers, you see that you're losing sometimes in the millions um, just by not noting this and not equipping your leaders 
with the tools that they need to manage, prevent, be proactive, and you're not equipping your staff, your frontline staff, with the tools to step up and or to respond constructively when situations do happen. Well, that's great because I definitely wanted to get into some of the tools that leaders and organizations can use to to really change some of the dynamic in the organization and get people thinking that way. And like you said, you know, part of this is a big part of this is actually just awareness because this isn't I don't think this is a, a regular conversation in most organizations or even on the radar screen of a lot of leaders. And um, one of the other beliefs that really caught my attention is that the belief from a lot of us that I know my colleagues' boundaries. And you had a couple of really powerful examples um, in the book. And I was, I was wondering if you could explain that and then also give us an example of where that that belief system might break down for us. So I was giving a session um, at an organization, jam-packed room. So I just consider this, uh, this picture. Everybody is sitting in a U-shape and... Because it's so jam-packed, so on the, the, the middle part of the U, there's actually sitting two rows there. And uh, one, I'm going to call her a very petite woman. I don't even know what she weighed. Probably very, very little, very petite. And um, <clears throat> when we're talking about something, and she says, and here, my friend Fatso here, and she points it to someone who's sitting at the U right in front of her, a big guy, I'd say twice her size in every shape, in every way. And and she referred to him as Fatso in front of the yes, entire Yes, yes. And she said, my, here, my friend Fatso. And she went on. And then, so, you know, at that point, a person like myself was standing in front of a, a room filled with people and already realizing that this being not the first session with this organization, that in this organization, it was one of the ones that I called the Wild West. It was, you know, it was all kinds of low-level harassment and certainly incivility galore. And um, I realized that at this point I already had the trust of the group and I could actually risk. And, um, and so I said, can I just stop you for a sec? Um, how, how did you call, how did you refer to your colleague? And she said, uh, Fatso. He's, and I said, really, how, how come? And she said, well, that's our, my nickname for him. I asked him right when he came here about five years ago. Uh, like after a few days when we got friendly, I said, can I call you Fatso? And he said, sure. And I said, really? And I said, I really risked. And I turned to the man and I said, um, how do you feel about being called Fatso? There was a silent, silent moment. You could have heard a pin drop in the room as this man was weighing all his options and then he said truth to be told I don't like it one bit mm. at which point the woman leaps out of her seat literally jumps at him and says what do you mean what do you mean and he says I don't but why didn't you tell me you're my friend we said you're my buddy and she was so incredulous, she couldn't believe it. And he said, well, I just didn't feel comfortable. And that, again, when you look at that behavior, it's run by the belief, I know my colleagues' boundaries. Mm. I, in this case, I asked permission five years ago, and the permission still stands. 
And it's a manager who I promise you, even in a Wild West organization like that, was had to wonder sometimes if this is okay or not, but doesn't have the tools, doesn't have the training, doesn't have the background to figure how to respond or to tap into that belief of I know my client's boundaries, my colleague's boundaries, or we're like a family here. Well, and, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a, I know, a real challenge, especially for some of the listeners in our community of for uh, all kinds of different reasons, having walked into or maybe inherited a team where some of this is happening, or in the case you cited, maybe a lot of it's happening. And mm-hmm. that's where I, I wonder, what's the starting point? So the book and the resources, of course, are, are places I'd really encourage people to start with if you do find yourself in that situation. Um, what's the first thing that when you're working with a client, you say, okay, here's where to start? <laughs> As the song goes, where do I begin <laughs> to tell the story? That probably dates some of us here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think the first thing when you're walking into uh, a new team and or you are new to leadership uh, is, and I write about this in the book about three no-nos for new, for new um, leaders is to really listen to that inner canary of yours, just like the canaries in the coal mine that uh, die when there is, uh, where there are poisonous gases in the mine shaft. So we have this very quick visceral reaction when something is crossed, the lines between dignity and undignified, between respectful and disrespectful, civil and uncivil. So that the newness of your canary, the, the sound that it, lets, that it makes for you, you might feel it physically or in other ways, you've got to listen to that because if not, you'll be inducted into that culture and your canary will kind of be numbed or mummed. So listen to that and that's the first thing and trust your that inner canary. And then start connecting with bigger things. What are what what is the mission of the organization? What are your values as an organization? And how are these behaviors potentially potentially either hampering that, getting in the way? Dave, I think if you you know from your own experience uh, that uh, incivility will leak into the interface with customers. It has to whether it's because people are talking in an uncivil way to one another and a customer feels that. There's some interesting new research that says that customers will walk away from the brand if they see that. They'll, they'll blame the organization for allowing it to happen. Uh, or customer, or people will talk in an uncivil way about the customer, and that changes how they deal with it. Or when stuff is going on in the back room between employees and then they have to work with customers, clients, patients, you know, whatever the sector, their frustration, their upset, their worry will impact how they deal with that outsider. I'm so glad you mentioned this because I can I can completely relate to there being times where I've, I know I felt that. I, 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 an early organization I worked in, I, I felt that like, you know, kind of a dynamic of how we worked with customers. And I felt we were very black and white with contracts and how we worked with customers. And 
Um, and I remember early on feeling a little bit of discomfort around that, but very quickly that was replaced by, well, this is kind of how we do things around here. And so that just got set aside when in fact, what I should have done is taken the responsibility to say, you know, this doesn't feel right to me. And how can I make this work for me and our customers in the context of the company's policies and procedures? And I failed to do that. And it absolutely drove some of our customers away in situations because I was too rigid. And so mm -hmm. I, I think that that's, that's like a key piece when I'm thinking just my own experience from a leadership standpoint of, of being willing to listen to that internal canary and then to to do something with that, because it's so easy just to get into the, oh, this is just how things are done around here or in this industry, like you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And my question to you, I'm really curious, Dave, is as time went on, were you feeling like on some level you were compromising your own self? Oh, for sure. For sure. Right? So, yeah. yeah. And it and took, no, it took a really... It took a, a customer really giving some negative feedback for me to kind of step back and go, hmm, maybe I'm not handling this the right way. <laughs> um, but, but, it, but had that not happened, I don't know if I'd be as, as what I think is very flexible with customers and clients today because I really learned, I had to learn not to fight with customers. And that seems like such a silly thing to have to learn, but I just became accustomed to that because of the culture of an early organization I worked with. Yeah. Thank goodness for customers who sometimes speak out loud, because if we're listening, there's actually something often to be gained. <laughs> oh, there is. And they're a great gift for us. And, and that's where I think that this is such an important reminder is you saying, you know, listen to yourself too, because <laughs> we have, we have this within ourselves to be able to recognize when something isn't working and when it's not sounding right. And yet a lot of the times we do we do try to quiet that just to say, okay, you know, this, I just need to fit in or I just need to to do things that, you know, work with this culture, this organization. Yeah. Exactly. And and in my work, what I try to do is motivate managers to say, when you have that internal feeling, it is your duty but more important, it is your privilege to do something about it mm. because it's your responsibility to create a workplace where everyone can perform at their best. That's what you're paid to do, to create those conditions that the people that you manage can perform at their best. If they are worried, if they are distracted, if they're busy talking about, you know, running into someone else's office to talk about what just happened to them, if they're taking more sick days, if they're purposely lowering their work effort, you failed in what you were hired to do. So, And it's not only your duty, it's also your privilege to create that kind of psychologically safe workplace. Mm, I love that. I love that. That it is, it's a duty and a privilege. And mm. I, I've heard the term over the years, I'm sure you have too, Sharon, that not making a decision is a decision. Not taking action sends a message, um, and so it it really is incumbent upon us to consider that, to recognize it, and then to start to think, you know, with with courage and with training and with the the tools and the models you provide of how can we approach that in a healthier way. And you know, I, I boy, there's so much we could go into on on this <laughs> on this book. Uh, what I want people to do is, if your canary is chirping right now and saying, "Hmm, there's something here that I need to hear," and if you happen to be the leader that we were talking about a few moments ago, 
that maybe has walked into a situation or maybe you're in a new leadership situation and your canary's tweeting a lot, I'd, I'd really encourage you to pick up this book and the resource from Sharon. I know that it will be helpful to you. And Sharon, uh, for those who do want to learn more about your work, what's the best way to, for folks to connect with you online? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Sharon Bardavid, and um, now uh, I invite everyone to, to link with me if they wish. On our website, uh, SharonBardavid.com or TrustYourCanary.com, which run right now are one and the same, uh, there is access to lots of resources, including free resources. There's a learning hub filled with years of, of content that is completely free. Our blog, which has a very large following, and people often forward it, and I often write from a leader's perspective, is filled with ideas. Like I think uh, the last one was about seven excuses people use to justify their gossip habit. And uh, so there's that. And there are links to the book. There are links to our Respect on the Go toolkits that I mentioned, our other, our other program, Team Civility Booster, which if you are managing a team, that program that Team Civility Booster will help you with some videos and discussions that you will have with the team to go on a journey over several months of boosting civility on the team. Um, essentially, Dave, like I'm trying to make myself obsolete here. <laughs> I'm trying to <laughs> spread the word out so that people can embed civility into their organizational DNA without having to pay, uh, you know, to bring in a consultant, but rather purchase the book or the tools and run with it using your own, um, whether you're a single manager or an HR person or whether you're a whole organization so people can do it without having to bring me or one of our trainers in. Well, Sharon, it's such noble work that you're doing. It's such an important topic. I really appreciate your time in, uh, in giving it to us in our community. And thank you so much for, um, for giving us so many examples on how we can, we can tackle this. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Dave, and for inviting me. And thank you to all the listeners. I invite all of you to do uh, to trust your canary and wish you good luck on the journey. Sharon Bar David is the author of the book "Trust Your Canary: Every Leader's Guide to Taming Workplace Incivility," and we'll have all the links that Sharon mentioned in the show notes and this week's weekly leadership guide as well. Thank you so much to Sharon for her perspective on incivility and also her work in this area. It is an area, sadly, that I don't think we talk about enough in organizations. Uh, we address things like bullying and harassment and the extreme versions of these things when we see them in many of our organizations, uh, as we should. And yet sometimes the lower grade version of uh, incivility, which is really where Sharon has uh, has really targeted her work for organizations is something that just goes unsaid and untalked about in a lot of organizations. And if you're in a place, and especially if you're in a leadership capacity, and this is a struggle for you or your organization, I'd really encourage you to take a look at Sharon's work. I think it's a wonderful starting place for you if you are struggling with this. And of course, uh, another place that's a resource is the things we mentioned in the episode. That's at coachingforleaders.com slash 210. 
And the next Q&A show is coming up in two weeks. Uh, every month, Bonnie and I open up the lines on the first, first Monday of the month uh, when the show airs and open up for questions on any topic related to leadership, including this topic today. So if you have a question you'd like to submit for consideration in a future Q&A show, I invite you to do so at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the best way to do that. And speaking of things online in a timely way, I mentioned last week the Coaching for Leaders Mastermind is accepting applications, and those close this coming Friday, September 25th, 2015. So if you're listening to this after that date, uh, the page won't be up there anymore, and there will be information about future opportunities, I'm sure. Uh, but if you are interested, uh, check out the page at coachingforleaders.com slash apply. I spoke in great detail about it on last week's episode number 209. So if you want to learn more, go back to that episode. And uh, just for a reminder, if you are interested in applying, this coming Friday the 25th is the deadline. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash apply. And while you're online, take a moment to join my weekly leadership guide, especially if you're just listening for the first time or have listened to only a few shows. The leadership guide comes to your inbox on Wednesdays and includes my thoughts and recommendations on articles, podcasts, videos, books, all kinds of resources I found online during the week that I think will support your development between the shows. And it also includes the show notes for every episode. So if that's of value to you, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And when you join the weekly leadership guide, you'll get access to my reader's guide, which lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries from me on the value of each of those books. I think you'll find that extraordinarily helpful. If you're looking for Where's a good starting point to become a more effective leader? A great way is to begin that process through a great leadership book. And that comes with the Reader's Guide and a nine-minute video. So if that's of interest to you, again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. I hope you have a fabulous week, and I look forward to talking with you on next week's episode next Monday. Take care. <laughs>